So you turn to 1 Thessalonians with me, please. 1 Thessalonians. I was going through some things this week, and I found a little paper that uh, had some interesting things about people um, and about different things. Do you hear about the latest sport that's having trouble? The professional bowlers are talking about strikes. Mm. Do you hear about the gangster that they buried him in cement? He's a hardened criminal. Did you hear about the exorcist that they forgot to pay when he was done? He repossessed their house. There was a heartbroken farmer because he got a Dear John, John Deere letter. And there was a rabbit that went to college, but he quit. They said he just didn't have enough character. Trying to get you guys awake this evening. It's not working. How about the three fellas that had trouble at their jobs? There was the car repairman said, I quit. It's not all it's cracked up to be. The window repair fellow says, this job's a real pain. And the doctor says, how can you have a practice when you don't have any patients? I know what someone's going to say to me afterwards, Pastor, don't quit your day job, right? I know, I got it, all right, it's coming, okay. Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians is one of the first books written in the New Testament by Paul, as far as his writings, and he's really instructing Christians, and one of the themes of 1 Thessalonians um, by Dr. Schofield is the model walk, the model church, the model, it, it's, Paul's laying out a model, he's laying out a type for the church and, and different things. And yet in all this, Paul is trying to encourage the believers and he says, I've come to you and I've come in a way to try to help you to find Jesus Christ as your personal savior. He said, what a great joy it is to see this church come into existence. So let's start with verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you, always making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. So we pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us as we look into Thessalonians tonight that you would open our hearts toward its message. And Father, that we would be encouraged to be um, a good model to the world to see Christ in us, the hope of glory, the hope of eternal life. Father, help me to have the freedom and ability to preach. And to, tonight, may our ears be circumcised, our hearts be uh, pulled back from the gross fat that encircles our hearts so that we can be lean to understand the word of God. Father, we thank you that we have this privilege to study and to know your word. 
Now be with us in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Paul said, what a privilege it is to bring the gospel to you, Thessalonians. It's had, uh, I give thanks, I'm praying for you. There's been a work of faith. There's been a labor of love. There's been patience of hope that's come. And I see the hand of God's election. And I believe salvation has come to this church. That's one of the reasons I had the testimony tonight, testimony service. God has brought us here because we know Jesus Christ. We're not a social club, although we do social things, don't we? Like bump, bump fist. <laughs> uh, we have a good time together. But our basis of fellowship is that we're in Jesus Christ as our Savior. That is our commonality. That's, that's who we are. We become one in Christ. But look at verse 5, please, if you will. We'll sort of jump in a little deeper. For our gospel, gospel meaning good news, came not unto you in word only. When Paul was preaching, he didn't just give a bunch of words or a message that had no heart. He said, our gospel came not only in words, but it came also in power. First, you have to get the word out. You have to get the message out. Christians, we've talked about before, it's important for all of us to know how to share the gospel. First Peter and Second Peter talk much about that when people see us, that we need to be able to share how to know Christ. I think it's amazing if you would talk to people in an average church and somebody came along and said, I'd like to get saved. You turn to that average church member. Could you go in the other room and they'd be like, oh, please don't do that to me. I'm not sure how to, I'm afraid I don't know how to do that. Tonight, if that were you, I, and somebody came up and I couldn't have the time to talk to this person, I said, could you please go with that person? Would you sort of go like that tonight? Do you know the gospel? I didn't say, are you saved? I mean, you know Christ, I hope. I trust you do. But do you know the gospel well enough to share it with somebody else? Everybody that's been saved for any period of time should know the word. Do you? I've confessed years ago when I was a teenager, I really wanted people to be saved, but I didn't know how to even go through what we call the Romans plan of salvation. Out in our lobby are little pamphlets, little orange pamphlets, and they are just printed there, how to lead somebody to Christ. Four or five different sets of verses from different places that you can get to know and work with and practice till you feel comfortable in showing someone how to get saved. And what do we want to show them? First of all, they're lost. Second of all, that Jesus Christ, God loves us in spite of the fact that we're sinners, that God has had a plan. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place in the cross and that he took our penalty, he was buried. But then the great hope is the resurrection that Jesus Christ had. And his resurrection is a type or the first example of those in Christ will be raised up in eternity to be with him forever. Do you know how to explain that to somebody? So he said, first of all, it came in word. Then he said, notice it says it came in power. The word power many times is translated different in the Bible. Here is the word dunamis, dynamite. The word of God, if you stick a piece of dynamite on somebody and light it, it's going to do the work. So the word of God preached. I took, I had a knowledge of it. I could systematize it well enough to take that stick of dynamite and stick it in, take the lighter, light it, and see that it changed people's lives or rearranged their thinking in the way of God's word. So the gospel preached was not just in word, but it was in power. And number three, he says this, and in the Holy Ghost. 
know, there's a part of witnessing that you can't explain to somebody else that doesn't know God, doesn't know Christ as their Savior, doesn't have the Holy Spirit. But when you witness, the Holy Spirit does an amazing thing. And according to Titus chapter 3, verse 5, he helps a person be born into the family of God. And it's something that eyes can't see, but when it happens, it changes that person eternally. So the Word of God was in word, it was, it was in power, and then it was the Holy Spirit taking that and doing something that we said, I just can't imagine. I, I Many times as I've witnessed to people, it's been amazing that I started to talk to them, and as I'm witnessing to them, I'm thinking, saying words, quoting verses that I haven't thought of in quite a long time. It's just the empowerment of the Holy Spirit doing a work that you can't explain. My job is to be obedient to the gospel and go. And then he says, fourthly, and it came forward in much assurance, being confident that God is able to save people when you witness to them. Do you believe that God could use you to win somebody to Christ? You know, it's a miracle. I, I tell you what, I, I've been preaching for years and every time somebody comes down the aisle and there are people get saved at church, it's just, it's just like, it's unbelievable. The first time I ever preached, I was on 10th or, uh, 11th or 12th grade, I'm not sure, right there. We were having a youth night, and somehow I got selected to preach. I tell you what, my pastor didn't help me. He said, you're up. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'd never been to anything like a Christian school around. I've heard preaching. And so I went home, and I, not too long ago, I, I kept my first sermon. I wrote it out word for word. My mom had some uh, stationery, and I took it and wrote it all out. And uh, I got it out and gave it to my, my wife. said, we ought to frame this. I said, you'll frame it in that little basket right over there I, where I read it. It was the only reason I kept it is because it was my first one. And as I preached, I got to the bottom of the end of the first page, and I just stopped reading and started talking. There was a burden on my heart to get across the gospel and to share the gospel and just preach it. And I can remember, I can remember standing there that night. I can just almost picture myself there right now and just exhorting with confidence that God can save you. And you need to come and get saved. And I gave an invitation, which is a little bit rare in my church, you have to understand, but I gave an invitation. And that night, a young lady in our youth group came and got saved. And when she came forward, I can remember I said, what do I do now, Pastor? I just didn't know what to do. But when God's word preached, we need to have much assurance that God is going to save people. The same gospel 2,000 years ago is the same powerful gospel in 2020. It'll change the lives of people that hear the message of God's salvation. So Paul said, this is what we did. And so go on, please, in that same verse. As you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And here is the underlying pivot of this whole thing. You saw our manner of witnessing. One of the things that turns people off to the gospel is hypocrisy. They hear us talking about something that changed our life, but the life isn't changed. There's, there's sin and there's uh, all kinds of hypocrisy, like I said, wrapped around it. But he said, you know what manner of man I am in our day and age. There are people that when they preach the gospel, it's to get a bigger offering or get a bigger building or to manipulate people in some sort of a way. Paul says, you saw my manner. 
that it was sincere, it was real, it was from God. My heart was open to you. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God flowing through me. What a powerful verse. Verse 6, he says, And ye became followers. That word followers, if you take notes, is actually mimios in the Greek, which means like a mimeograph. You became a mimic. Or another word, you became an imitator. Here it's translated follower. You became a mimic of me, a follower of me. Wow, that's something to think about. Would you just imagine in your heart for a moment if everybody that you talked to about Christ got saved and they became a quality Christian of your quality? In other words, they became just like you. What kind of church would we have? Wow. That's really something to think about. They became followers of us. And notice it says then, and of the Lord. These two things are inextricably linked together. Our testimony with the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's something to really think about. The way that I react at work, the way I talk to my neighbors, the way that they see all my testimony is linked together with that of the Lord Jesus Christ. You became followers of me and then you became followers of the Lord. You know, many times when, let's just take a person like a pastor, a pastor falls and he, he goes into immorality maybe with somebody in the church or something. Isn't it amazing how it affects the entire church congregation? because they're followers of that pastor's ministry and they're following him and Christ. Do you realize, Dad, your children are following Christ and they're following you? Mama, your kids are following Christ and they're following you. Do you realize, Sunday school teacher, they're following Christ and they're following you. I tell our Christian school teachers, they sign a nine month or so uh, contract each year to be here. And I said, you know what, you can be here. I tell our assistant pastors, youth pastors, they come, you can be here five years, 10 years, one year, whatever it is that you're here. But you draw people to yourself and you go to leave Westside Baptist Church and you start living like a hypocrite and you think nobody is gonna be hurt. They are followers of, of you. They'll look at you for the rest of their life. And they'll say, what happened to that and pastor? What happened to, to that Sunday school teacher? What happened to that Christian school teacher? What happened to that youth pastor that he's so different than he used to be? He said he loved the Lord. They, she said that you, know, you should give all for Christ. So you became imitators of us and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this, if there's anything that's just extra to challenge us to live a holy life, it's right here. Because people are hooking their wagon to us. They're looking at us. And we need to make sure that the real, we're the real dear deal. And so you became followers of, of us and Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost. And you notice, I'm not going to make a big emphasis on this, but there was much affliction. They got saved. There were battles in their life. In this case, there was, there was persecution in their life, and Paul was under persecution. And, and yet, what joy it brought in their life at the same time. 
Look at verse 7. So that ye were, it says here, in samples. The word in samples is the word, you've heard me talk about it before in the Greek, it's tupos. You became types. What's a type in the Bible? It's an example. Joseph is a tupos of Jesus in the Old Testament. You look at Joseph in the Old Testament and you run down the traces in his life, he very much, you can just see Jesus in Joseph in the way that it's all reflected. And so when we get saved, we become an example. So let's just think about this for a moment. So far, we have Paul saying, you saw Jesus in me and you became an imitator of me. And so now you're the tupos for somebody else. I can remember in the early days of copiers, I remember the first time I saw what they called a plain paper copier. Before that, they used to have this piece of paper that was like tissue paper almost. You'd run it through and it would make a photocopy on it and it was, you could see it pretty good, but it wasn't really too good. And if you left it out in the sun, it would disappear because it was photo sensitive paper. And then they came along with what we have now. You could just copy just like this right on here and it's pretty good copy. And then they went from that to ink to laser. And boy, sometimes after you, after you have a copy of something and you lay them down and turn around, you say, which is the original? They became a, they became a, a copy. And so you see what happens in Christianity. You have the Lord Jesus Christ in his gospel, and then you have people like Paul the Apostle, and then you see people get saved, and then they become an example, and somebody else gets saved. You see how it happens. We as a church need to realize that as our gospel spreads out, people are looking at us to find Jesus Christ. Every once in a while, on the copier, uh, Mindy usually handles most of the copies, but every once in a while I'll get in there and do something. And, and I'm, just the other day I went to make a copy and I, I guess it just was some dirt or something on the lens or whatever. And when I came out, it had all these little black speckles all over it. I thought, that's not going to do. I want this thing to go out nice. So I went and got some alcohol and a little a Kleenex and I cleaned the glass off real good and everything and ran it through a couple of times and there came out a crystal clear black and white copy. So that's the copy I want. You know, Christians, sometimes that's what we need to do with our lives. We're, we're busy witnessing, but we accumulate stuff. And we need to get before God and clean things out. And so he talks about that verse 7, so that ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out, that word sounded out is an interesting word. It follows what we're saying. It means literally from you echoed out. You ever been somewhere where you said, hello, hello, hello. Jesus, save, 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 save. Can you see it? From you, sounds out, sounds out, the gospel, the gospel. You stand there, and they, you ever done that in the canyon? Just trying to think of something else to say. It's just bouncing back. So from you, here I am. 
I, I am trying to live as a, a good example of Christ and I'm following somebody that led me to Christ and I'm trying to lead other people to Christ and for me is echoing out the gospel. It's being passed from canyon to canyon to canyon. People are hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ. Go on, if you will, please. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Everybody's talking about it. When I became a pastor, I don't know, maybe Pastor Stephen, they taught it to you over a crown, but I didn't realize when you became a pastor that your house was always made out of glass. Everybody knows all your business. You ever seen that, Brother Austin? I mean, you beat your wife, they all know. I'm teasing. Okay, okay, I'm just joking. Okay. They know everything about your life. From you echoed out the gospel, and he says, everywhere your faith is echoed out, and people see it, and it's spread abroad. The old example of a of a dandelion. The other day there was a dandelion that came up here and had the whole fuzzy head and I started to blow and I said, oh, that's stupid. <laughs> Put it back in my pocket and threw it away the better way. Because you said in that dandelion, out it goes and it spreads abroad, doesn't it? And every place one of those little, those little parachutes lands, you're gonna get, there's a seed planted. And that's our life. This is the gospel from Westside Baptist Church that we're gospeling out, we're, we're echoing out, and people are hearing. And the word of God, like a wave of a, on a seashore, is going forward and, 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 and going. So out goes the message. And it's spreading abroad. You ever been in a pond? And you know what boys like to do? I guess girls like to do it too. But guys like to go down, pick up a rock, throw it out there and it makes a little ring, doesn't it? Ring! And sometimes when you go early in the morning and you have glassy, I mean, there's not a ripple at all on the lake or anything, and you're, it's neat to see how far the ripple will grow. It just goes forever. Just think of my witness here at Westside Baptist Church. How far could it go? I heard the story of Dr. Jack Howells Dr. Jack Howells, great soul winner, and he, he was asked to speak in India. He went over to India, and, and he was waiting to catch some public transportation, and they speak mostly English there, but the Hindi and some other things, and, and he wasn't getting too far and didn't know where to go next, and, and along came a guy, and he said, do you know English? The guy said, I sure do. He said, really? And so Dr. Howells, he said, I'm going to witness to this guy as well as get instructions, and he said, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior? He said, I sure do. He said, well, how'd you come to know the Lord? He said, I was in Hammond, Indiana, going to school at college, and I got picked up on a bus, and I got saved, and I've come back over here, and, and talked about how busy he was in, in a, a Bible study, starting a church in his home. And he said, really, you were? He said, yeah, there's a great pastor named that Dr. Jack Hiles. He had no idea who this was. He, didn't, he never heard Dr. Hiles. And Dr. Hiles said after that, as he walked away from them, he said, I just can't imagine that what I was doing in the Chicago, Hammond, Indiana area, that it had echoed all the way over here to India. We have no idea how far our message is going to echo, especially in today's world. I throw up 
I throw the gospel in the world pond and it spreads abroad. And as I'm faithful to Christ, and we're really sort of building to get ready for chapter 2, so let's just rush on, please, a little bit. He said, every place is spread abroad. Look at verse 9. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. I want you to mark that word manner in that you had. What, what was your manner? All these different people are seeing how or what way you were testifying. And he says, how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus Christ, which delivered you, delivered us from the wrath to come. And so the message of the gospel is changing their lives and they're, and they're turning from, from the false gods and they're coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and now they're waiting for him to come and they have no fear of the wrath, but they're waiting for the promise. Chapter 2, verse 1. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance un unto you, it was not in vain. I don't know. I taught those fourth, fifth grade girls for four years, and it just didn't seem like I got anywhere. Can I tell you, when you take the gospel in a true vessel and you preach it with the power of the Holy Spirit, it will not be empty. That's what that word vain means. It wasn't an empty run. You don't know what God's word is doing in the hearts of people when you witness at work and when you write letters of salvation to your relatives and emails back and forth trying to persuade them to have the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And Paul says, my gospel preached unto you was not empty. Christians, we don't know what God's always doing in somebody's heart, how close they are, laying foundation line upon line for the day when they accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. My second year I was at Bob Jones, I had a pastor's son as my roommate. And he wasn't saved until he was 17 years old. His name was John McKnight. It's Dr. John McKnight now. And he's a pastor of quite a large church up in Maryland and, and all the rest. But he wasn't saved. Went to a Christian school, just like we have at Westside Baptist Academy. Grew up through. He memorized tons of scripture, sat through chapel, and he wasn't saved. One day, his dad realized that Johnny probably wasn't saved. He was acting like just like an unsaved person, and they had an evangelist through. And he said to the evangelist, he said, I'm really concerned about my, my son. And so they arranged for the evangelist to be home in the afternoon about the time that the son would come home from, from high school. And, and, and the son was told to make sure he got you know, the evangelist some, some uh, things to eat. And the evangelist was sitting there waiting to give him something to drink, which is the water of life. And he said, Johnny, let me ask you, do you know the gospel? He said, yes, sir, I know the gospel. What is the gospel? And he said, this is what the gospel is. He says, do you believe the gospel? Have you accepted the gospel? And that day, Johnny came head to head with the gospel, and he accepted Jesus Christ as a personal Savior. He said, Pastor Butts, he said, it was uh, uh, Barry Webb's father, Hal Webb was the preacher. And he talked to him, he accepted Christ. I tell you that story because two years later now, he's my... He's my roommate in Bible college. And he said, Rich, 
is that all those messages and all those verses and all that foundation that my family and people, and he said, I knew they were feeling like they were giving up and I was going to be that prodigal son, but it was not in vain. And boy, when he went on for the Lord, he went on. Listen, we don't know what God's doing in people's hearts or what they're thinking, but I can tell you this, the word of God never goes forth vain. Verse 2. But even after that, we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. That is a verse all in itself about the difficulty sometimes of witnessing. Notice he said we'd suffered, we were shamefully entreated. Do you remember how Paul was locked up at Philippi, put in prison, and all the different things that happened to him? And maybe he could have said, it just looks like nothing was going to happen. He said, you know I was shamefully treated. If you're waiting for a thank you from an unsaved world because you're carrying the gospel, don't hold your breath. We know in the book of John, chapter 3, it says the world, when we shine the gospel in their eyes, they reject it because their deeds are evil. They're not going to say, oh, thank you. Here comes the soul winner. Well, praise God for Westside Baptist Church down there. It holds up the gospel light nice and bright in our dark community. Don't, don't wait for another thank you. It's not going to come. It'll come, though, when they accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. When the heart is changed by the gospel, it will come, and they shamefully treated them. And in spite of this, listen to me, in spite of the shameful treating, the imprisoning, and the rejection, look at the end of part, second part of verse 6, verse 2, I'm sorry. We were bold. We were bold. And bold doesn't mean loud like I'm shouting. What does bold mean? Bold just simply means that we were confident. We knew we were, what we were preaching was right and correct. And without it, this world's going to die and go to a literal burning hell. And my message, even though it was being rejected and I was being rejected and shamefully entreated, it didn't shut down my preaching of the gospel. Question for us. What does it take to make you shut your mouth with the gospel? Do we believe it? Yes. Do we believe it's what the world needs? Yes. Is it our job? To, are we commissioned to carry it? Yes. Then why are we not bold? Our God has sent us forth with a commission. So he says we were bold to preach the gospel of God with much contention. And that word contention is just another conflict and fighting. When you go with the gospel, you are entering into the boxing ring or the wrestling ring, as it were. And there's going to be much pushback. And can I tell you, the closer you get to somebody getting saved more likely the more contention you're going to get. You ever been fishing? You're out there and the fish, are they, are, they all, are they all just sort of flipping around and going after you? No, but you throw out the bait. 
They nibble at the bait. They grab a hold of the bait. The hook goes in their mouth, and you start to reel them in. And at first, there's some pulling back and forth. What happens the closer they get to the boat? They say, thank you. Want me to hop up there for you? I'll lay on my side while you cut my head off. They don't do anything like that. I mean, you watch people out in the, when they get the big trophy fish, they're going, and in like two hours, they come back, oh, I never knew I had muscles like that. Oh, it hurts so much. To, that's so funny. With much contention. Hey, wouldn't it something you're standing over here on the dock and you got this thing that's like 400 miles long, weighs 7,000 pounds. You say, I brought that in. Trophy. It's a trophy of grace. When you see somebody accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, you forget about the battle. Christians, there are times that you just have to wade in, roll up the sleeves, get your pant legs pulled up, and tighten up your, your coat a little bit and just sort of gird on for the battle determined to hang on to witness. So Paul says, you know my entrance in. Look at verse 3 again. For our exhortation was not, and here he talks about his style of preaching, and we're going to pick up the pace here. It was not deceitful. It was not unclean, and it was not with guile. What is the idea of deceitful? It wasn't filled with fraud. What we said was plain and true. Can I encourage you something when you're witnessing? Just tell the truth. Don't try to embellish it. Let God's work, word do the work. They weren't fraudy. They weren't deceitful. It was based on a life that was a clean life, not a life that was filled with of sin. And it was not with guile, tricking people to get saved. Years ago, we had an evangelist that came into our church and uh, I almost stopped the meetings. We had like 25 people make professions of faith Friday, Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday, and Sunday night. People came, and they sort of liked, and there was a young, brand-new evangelist, and we come to the invitation, he'd say, you're going to raise your hand up. Young man, you're going to raise your hand up. you going to raise your hand. Come on, raise your hand up. I thought, what in the world? I don't need to go out there and raise the guy's hand up for him. He was emotional. Can I tell you, after the meetings, I was a young preacher. I probably today would have stopped him. But after the meetings were all over, I didn't see any of those 25. I didn't see them. My watch is going off. Did you fall down? Are you having an emergency? I'm okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> You had the emergency, I think, out here. Okay. He said, our message was not trickery. Listen, people. We take the Word of God. We give it our best ability we have. We present it. We, we invite people in. But we say, why are you coming? Because we believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God here. And he's the only And we just tell the truth. Look at verse 4. But as we were allowed of God 
to be put in trust with the gospel. Boy, isn't that a lot to think about? We got saved, and then God said, here, I'd like to trust you with something to pass on. We've been put in trust with it. What are you going to do? God gave you the gospel how many years ago? Have you shared it? God has trusted you with it. As we were put in trust with the gospel, not as pleasing men, that's like the morning message, but pleasing God which trieth our hearts. One day, God is going to look at our trust with the gospel. Verse 5, For neither at any time use we flattering words. What are flattering words? A flatterer tries to say things nice to a person to get them to do something that they want, and it's not based on a righteous reason. It's to get something from them. We didn't use flattering words. We didn't use a cloak of, right, of, of covetousness. A cloak is a covering, isn't it? We didn't try to cloak our desire to stick our hand in their pocket so our church could get bigger and get more money. We didn't have a cloak of covetousness. We didn't use flattering words. Listen, churches that do that are not building Christ's kingdom. Verse 6, nor of men sought we glory. We didn't see glory of you. We didn't see glory of others. When we might have been burdensome even as the apostles of Christ. Paul says we came, we paid for it ourselves. We didn't become burdensome to you. And we didn't seek your thanks or your gratitude or your glory. We just came as faithful messengers of the gospel. True mimickers of the gospel that you could look at as we have been changed by Christ so you could be changed like Christ. Verse 7, but we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes her children. How do you treat babies? I think it's different than the guys out here in the football field. Here, take the baby. That's not how you do it. I remember the first time that I held one of my, my sisters had a baby and, and I was hoping I was old enough that they'd let me hold it. And I can remember they said, sit down on the couch and they put a pillow over here under my arm and, and they laid the baby, oh. <laughs> I almost dropped it. <laughs> Just, I was so excited to touch her like that. That's how you cherish. A mother cherishes that baby. You see the mama, she's just drawing him close and she's patting him, she's just loving and cooing away on him and just working with him. She's not screaming at it. She, she's just trying to nourish that child. This is soul winning. You're cherishing, you're teaching, you're living a life. Uh, and a child, you know, children, if they get scared, well, I'd last for long time, every time they see you come in the room, ah! we shouldn't be witnessing like that. But you nourish and you cherish people uh, to bring them to, as a nurse does. Look at verse 8. So being affectionately desirous 
of you. I looked up the word affectionately desirous, and it means like a person that takes in a foster child. Do you know, it's, it's one thing to have a child of your own and have all the bills and everything, but when you foster a child or adopt a child into your home, you say, ooh, we want, we want that child to come into our house, and you foster it. What's foster? You want it to grow. You want that child to, to, um, to be just thriving. You foster it. That's the idea of affectionately desires. We wanted to foster you. We wanted you to grow and come to the knowledge of Christ. And we were like a mother with a gentle with a child and we cherished you. This is the kind of soul winner Paul was. Don't we often think of Paul as more like a banger? But he says, you, you know my way that I came in among you. It was real. It was with the word of God. It was with the word of God with power. It was the word of God with the Holy Spirit. And there was a life to back it up. You wonder why Paul's ministry was so successful. Let's go on, please. So, verse 8, being desirous, affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also, this is how far they were, we, our own souls, because you were dear unto us. Boy, this reminds me of Paul over in, in uh, Romans chapter 9 where he says to the Jewish people, I would have given my own salvation if I made it so you could get saved. He says right here the same basic thing. He says, we, we want you to get saved. We would, we would have given you our own soul. Isn't it neat when you hear a story about maybe a mother or a father has a child that has missing a kidney and they're having a problem and mama gives her kidney? This is sort of the idea here. I'd do anything. I, I give you my kidney. I give you my life. And can, can people sense if you're trying to get from or give to? Do you see the difference in the attitude here? I'm here to share with you something that'll change your life. And I tell you, it's so important. I'll give anything for you to have my Savior. And you know that's how I came to you. And he said, why? At the end of verse 8, because you were dear unto us. Do you know what that word dear is? It's from the word agapao. Remember there's three kinds of love? Erotic love, there's brotherly love, and then there's a love of God that gives no matter what the response is. He says, I was willing to witness to you because I loved you just like God loves you, and I'd be willing to give my very life, whether you ever accepted Christ or not, my job was to get the gospel out to you because you're dear to me. You're very dear to me. When we start seeing people with that kind of love, the love of God in our life, it's going to give us a brand new reason and desire for soul winning. Are souls dear to you? Verse 9. For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail. I think that's sort of interesting. Labor is hard work, isn't it? But when you look at the word travail, it gives the idea of having a baby. 
My wife, when she told me we were going to have our first child, we were excited. It was back in the day where they didn't let you much go into the delivery room, and I had to take six or eight weeks of Lamaze classes. Anybody here can identify with this, okay? And so we had to take all these classes and teach and go through and breathe and hold the pillow behind her back and all these other kind of stuff. Uh, finally, we got to the delivery room. My wife, of course, waited till 11.30 at night to go into the hospital. So we're there from midnight until about 8.45, Richie's finally born. And I watched my wife go through that. She's having all these contractions and, and all the rest, and she's just ramping up. She's in labor. She's in labor. But when the travail come, was I surprised. I watched my wife. They said, okay, don't push. Don't push. She's like, I got to push. Don't push. I got to push. I'm not going to push. Ladies, can you identify with this? And finally, it's time. And they said, you can push. She said, really? Are you sure? Lady, push. And my wife bore down. And the first time she pushed, nothing happened. He said, come on, Mrs. Butts, push. <laughs> the, the gynecologist that was having, uh, our doctor went to church with us, Dr. Kim. He, he's going, Go, Mrs. Butts, you can do it, Mrs. Butts. You can do it, come on, like, like a cheerleader, okay? Push! And I watch, I'm, I'm going where I'm going here. And I watched my wife, and she grabbed a hold of whatever was there, and she, and juggler vein came out, and she pushed, and I tell I'm scared. She, when that baby came out, and boy, Oh, it was all over. I thought Dr. Kim was the father. The way he was so excited, he caught the baby. He goes, oh, you have a baby? Oh, it's a baby boy. And all the rest, everybody was so excited. But the labor and the travail to get that baby. I learned one thing. You don't tell somebody that's just gone through that. Do you want to have another one? You might get a knuckle sandwich. You have to wait a month or two. Shall we have another one? No, the babies are awfully cute. They're, poor, they're, they're worth all the work. Maybe they'll try again for another one. It's labor. It's travail. People, how do souls get saved? A lot of labor. A lot of tenderness. A lot of prayer. Agape type love. And lives that are real that are preaching it. Do you get Paul? Do you understand this passage? This is a soul-winning type of a church that does this. It doesn't happen like automatic, put them all, babies come in the world, they, you send them over to the church, send them down the road, and they're going to all get saved. It's much prayer, much work, much tenderness, much give your own soul to see that person saved. He says, for laboring, verse 9, for laboring night and day, Boy, doesn't that add to it? How long does it take? Night and day and night and day. Because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. So we preached unto you the gospel of God. People, God placed us in this Katy community around here. And one day we're going to have to give account. God puts you on your street with a neighbor over here that you talk about the flowers and you talk about your yards and you talk about your new cars you got and you talk about the kids going to college. Why don't you talk about Jesus? 
You're going to be charged with Working with the same group of people for day in, day out. You go to lunch together. You share birthday things, and they sell their cookies to you for their kids, and you buy their cookies, and all this other kind of stuff goes on. Why don't you share Jesus with them? He says, I, don't, I, I would not be chargeable. The Old Testament talks about the watchman on the wall doesn't want to have blood on his hands. He'd be charged. We could talk much about that. He said, I don't want to be chargeable unto any of you. We preach the gospel, verse 10. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how, and notice the three definitions of his life. He was holy, he was just, and he was unblameable. A holy life. What's that? Without sin. Just. He was a person that handled people righteously, and he was unblameable. There weren't people in the neighborhood saying, oh yeah, that's the hypocrite that lives in the corner. So we, we, we lived a real life before you. We behaved ourselves among you that believed, as you know how we, then he said, we exhorted you, we comforted you, and we charged you. Exhort means like the paraclete of the Old Testament, of the Holy Spirit comes along, and we comfort you as somebody to help you understand. And the idea of chargeable is here is literally the word that means to witness. We comforted you, and we exhorted you, and we witnessed to you of Christ. Every one of you as a father doth his children. So now we've had mama talked about the cherishism, but here's dad that's trying to bring you along. Your mama says, you need to go in there and talk to him. Boy, you better watch out, it's a dad talk. That's a pretty honest, straightforward, caring dad that's sitting down. Do you get the images of our gospel presentation? There are a lot of them here, but they're all very direct and things that we can understand. Verse 12, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, that was back in chapter 1, ye received it not as the word of men, but understood ye received it as truth. The word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. There has to come a point where after we've laid the message out and we've been a true mimic of the followers of Christ and they see Christ in us, the hope of glory, that they have to make up their mind, is this human being origin or is this divine? And when they see a changed messenger that's real and tender, and not trying to get anything out of it. They would lay their life down to martyr themselves for your soul. It has an impact. Verse 13 and verse 14. For you, brethren, became followers of the churches. Notice that word, mimic again, which are in Judea. And now you also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. He said, you've accepted Christ, now you're trying to do the same thing. Listen, Christians, I think that's in there to remind us that it's the same thing every generation. It's our job to win this generation, just like the generation before us won us to Jesus Christ. 
verse 15, who also killed the Lord Jesus. They didn't accept Christ, did they? They put him on the cross. They killed the prophets. They persecuted us. They pleased not God. They're contrary to all men. This is always going to be the response of an unsaved world. Forbidding us to speak. Boy, we're in a time where going into the public sector, forbidding to speak. I thought just a little sense of that this week. Vice President Pence has been put over the uh, coronavirus task force or whatever. And I saw on the news yesterday that he gathered all these group, I don't know if it was in his office or where he was with him, got them all together and he said, as we start this endeavor, do you remember, did you know what he did? He said, let's pray. Now, I don't know, I'm not trying to lift President, uh, Vice President, uh, President Pence up to be anything he is or isn't or saved or not. He seems like he is. But he was not afraid to tenderly take that mission before those people and say, God's first in everything I do. What was the response, do you think, from the news? How dare he mix God with this crisis? <laughs> How dare he not? The world will never receive our gospel easily. Don't expect a pat in the back. Verse 17. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in our heart, have endeavored uh, the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again. But notice again, he says, but Satan, what? Hindered me. Paul said, I want to come down and help you do the job. But Satan is just active. Every time that we have revival meetings, I wish you could be in the church office for the week before. When Mindy first came to work as my secretary, I explained to her that the devil beats the fire out of people the week before revival. She goes, okay. Am I right? Satan will always hinder the gospel. You try to invite somebody to church, go out and see your tire flat. You got somebody to go to church, you're going to have them over to eat, and your child gets the flu. I tell you what, Satan is a hinderer. But I learned something a long time as well ago, and you know this, I think most of us know this. When he really starts to pitch a fit, something over the hill must be getting ready to ripen. We end with verse 19 and 20. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Can I rephrase this? What is Christian living all about? What is our purpose? What is the greatest fruit that a Christian could have? What is our hope, joy, and crown? And he answers very clearly, are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and his coming? Jesus comes back and says, hey, Lord, let me show you my new car. Hey, Lord, I got a brand new house. Lord, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going the prettiest roses out in the background. You want to smell them, Lord? Lord, 
Do you know how much money I have in my CD? When Jesus Christ comes back, how many people are you going to take with you? I remember as a young Christian, somebody asked a question. They said, what is the only thing you can take to heaven besides yourself? You can't take your job. You can't take your anything. But you can take other people. If you knew that you could take things to heaven and they'd be there for eternity, wouldn't you start investing in that kind of investment? It's the only thing that really matters, the glory of God and bringing people to him and his coming. For ye are our glory and you are my joy. greatest thing in the world is seeing people come to know Christ and their lives change and they go out and tell other people. It, there's nothing so encouraging, intoxicatingly, joyfully, just exciting than God used me to bring somebody into Christ. Listen, Christians, you won't regret it. I think the only regret we really will have is that we didn't do it sooner, bolder, and longer, and harder, harder with all of our hearts. Ye are our joy. Ye are our glory. This is Paul's heart. Remember, probably one of his very first books that he's writing, and he's writing the first and second chapter about the importance of being a real model Christian soul. It's right off the bat. I mean, that's the most important thing on his mind. I don't 100% agree with the statement, but I agree with the spirit of it. If a church gets soul winning right, it gets everything else right. Now, I think that could be twisted. You could argue with it. But a church that's got soul winning right sure is going to do well in a lot of other areas. One of the things that Satan wants to do, if he can't now take us to hell, he can blunt our witness. He can intimidate us so we're not sharing the gospel. He can make us hypocrites so that nobody, when we do talk, will believe us. Listen, Christians, this is the preciousness of our church. It's not just the teaching the word and joining in our salvation. That's good. Wouldn't cut that back a bit. What's the joy and glory going forth and bringing people into Christ? And it takes tender, spirit-filled, Holy Spirit-empowered Christians that are bold and confident with the gospel, and they're tender, and they're so willing to give that they give their own soul, backed up with a holy, unbelievable life. God, help us. I can't make anybody else. God, help me to be that kind 